over time, we've become uh, sort of more attached to the sea for uh, not only industrial and commercial reasons, but aesthetic reasons as well, and that draws us closer. What does that mean? What does climate change impacts along the shore mean for that way of life? How serious a problem is it? How can we improve the situation by perhaps learning to live more responsibly and uh, sustainably along the shoreline? And when we really can't move things or make a direct change on the material and the, the development that's there, what do we need to do? Believe it or not, we are actually sinking we're on something called the forebulge of, uh, of that depressed crust. So the idea of relative sea level rise takes into account global sea level rise and the local adjustment of the crust. Unfortunately, for the sort of southern maritimes, uh, we are sinking. The crust is sinking at 10 to 15 centimeters per century. But of course, that compounds the problem of global sea level rise. Welcome to Beyond Research, a podcast brought to you by Research Nova Scotia. Today, we will be speaking with leading researchers who are helping us better understand, plan and prepare for rising sea levels. Using the province of Nova Scotia as a case study, first we explore coastal flood risk mapping and how it can help us gain a deeper understanding of how future scenarios will likely play out on our shorelines. Then we look at the ways we can use this information to better plan and adapt to the world as it will be in the coming decades. Nova Scotia and its 13,300 kilometres of coastline is home to many coastal communities. Of these communities, some are already facing the impacts of changing sea levels, storm surges and climate change firsthand. This episode explores how sea level rise has affected our province to date and proposes collaborative approaches we should consider implementing to mitigate the impacts on our communities, our industries, and our way of life. So what is sea level rise, and why should the public pay attention? Simply put, sea level rise is the progressive rising of the ocean water level, and there are two types of sea level rise to consider. The first is global sea level rise, which as it sounds provides global projections, the second, relative sea level rise, is regional in focus and involves the relative position of the Earth's crust to the sea level. Relative sea level rise is of particular concern in the southern maritimes, because believe it or not, we are sinking 10 to 15 centimetres per century. We must also account for extreme weather events. During these extreme events, factors such as high tides, full moon, strong winds and low atmospheric pressure can lead to storm surges and wave run-up. This gradual sinking, coupled with extreme weather events, actually compound the problem of global sea level rise on Nova Scotia. What we really need to think about is relative sea level rise, and we see a very nice, straight, linear trend that shows us relative sea level has been rising since that early part of the 1900s at about a foot per century. Of course, the big question, though, is how is sea level rise going to change? Is, is the rate of sea level rise globally going to accelerate as we heat up the climate more? And that, of course, is the, the million-dollar question that there is still some uncertainty, but uh, you know, I think the science is narrowing in, and, and not too many people will dispute the idea of a one-meter 
global sea level rise by 2100, as an example. This is Dr. Tim Webster, lead research scientist with Nova Scotia Community College's Applied Geomatics Research Group. The Applied Research Group is associated with the NSCC's Geomatics Training Facility, the Center for Geographic Sciences. Dr. Webster's research focus includes LIDAR and other high-resolution remote sensing and geographic information system techniques for mapping, monitoring, and modeling processes in the coastal zone, with an emphasis on flood risk and erosion. With his team, Dr. Webster creates maps overlaid with sea level rise predictions, high tides, and storm surge numbers to show where flooding will occur. His work has helped model what sea level rise could look like across Nova Scotia. Now, I use the word geomatics, and if you are like me, you probably have no idea what that means. So we're going to let Dr. Webster shed some light on his work. So geomatics is, for those not familiar with that term, it's basically the science of, of mapping. And we have really developed a strong expertise in mapping high-resolution elevation models. And we can do that both onshore and more recently offshore with uh, using lasers on aircraft, something known as LIDAR, light detection and ranging. LIDAR technology fires laser pulses at surfaces and maps them by measuring how long it takes for the light to bounce back. With that geographic information, Dr. Webster can create these predictive maps. You could wonder what practical application these maps can have for government or the public. So Dr. Webster provides some insight. Our field of study has been dealing with creating these high-resolution elevation models along the coastal zone, and then projecting sea level rise into the future of where areas could be inundated. So what are vulnerable to, say, a road being overtopped and therefore affecting transportation and emergency services? Or, you know, planners are using our maps to consider, you know, oh, we need to put in a new sewage treatment facility. Here's the site we planned, but okay, in a hundred years' time, if, if sea level were to rise a meter, then we would see what is inundated. Oh, that, that particular area will be inundated. Let's find a new location to, uh, to put this sewage treatment plant so we're, we're sure it's going to be operational and not threatened as the years of its lifespan uh, continue. This process of uniformly raising the sea level is called a bathtub model. However, it does not account for the underwater elevation levels also known as nearshore bathymetry, which is an important component to this process of storm surge and coastal flooding erosion. They are very accurate maps, and I stand behind them, in that water's going to get to the low spot given enough time. But what these maps don't show you is the velocity of the water and, and so forth. In order to do that, we go to a more sophisticated modeling approach rather than a flat plane. This model is called hydrodynamic modeling. Using this, Dr. Webster and his team can simulate a storm surge on top of a predicted tide to calculate both the water level increases and changes, as well as the current velocity and where the currents are moving and how the area is going to flood. The next big leap in their work is through the modeling of waves and wave runup. To achieve this, Dr. Webster uses something that is hard to say, topographic bathymetric LIDAR which is mounted in an aircraft and uses lasers to measure the precise elevation of the Earth's terrain across the land-sea boundary out to depths of 15 metres on the Atlantic Ocean side. So what pushed Dr. Webster to pursue this area of research? Well, I'm a, I'm a born and raised blue noser. My, my knowledge and love of the coastal zone and seeing the threats that, that 
are present today with storm surges and, of course, will be exasperated with climate change and sea level rise in the future is really what made us focus in and, and uh, try to make sure we, we became as uh, uh, skilled as we could with making these types of predictions. International models supported by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predict global sea levels will rise between 29 centimetres and 110 centimetres by the end of this century. The urgency of our situation becomes much clearer and more immediate when we consider that Nova Scotia is sinking 10 to 15 centimetres per century. So, at a time the ocean is getting higher, Nova Scotia is getting lower. This progressive sinking and extreme weather events combine to worsen the problem of global sea level rise on this province. Consider the range of variables at play for how sea level rise could play out. Some may wonder how Dr. Webster determines what water level rises to use for his predictive models. His team's approach has been to try and research and document historic storms as a basis for the future modeling. We call them benchmark storms. Because, of course, at the end of the day, this information through planners or other municipal officials is going to make it to the public. And, you know, there's still skepticism there about, you know, would my area really flood? It hasn't flooded while I've lived here. How am I convinced? So our approach has always been when we go to an area to do a study like this would be to, to research when there was a benchmark storm, try to find any documentation we can about how, how far was the flooding inland, what was the extent, what were the conditions, the damage, etc. And then, of course, as we are modeling that, we try to duplicate that to see, you know, our, does our model show the similar extent and so forth. So, will we be able to fully halt the effects of sea level rise on our province going forward if we act now? The best we can do is slow down Mother Nature. There's no way we're going to stop it in my opinion, um, but we can slow it down and perhaps uh, protect infrastructure for some more decades. Uh, and then, of course, if we have those maps, if we are going to build new infrastructure, we build it in a smarter place where it's going to be less vulnerable for a longer period of time as these processes continue. With this topobathymetric LIDAR, Dr. Webster and his team have surveyed some areas but he sees an opportunity for a systematic approach to coastal mapping everywhere in the province. On the positive side, all three maritime provinces now have topographic LIDAR across their entire land masses. So the, the high-resolution uh, elevation data exists in order to make these, these flood maps. So that's a, a big step forward for us. But those other areas... More information on tide gauges, more information on, on the impacts of storms and how far they flooded, um, advances in technology to be able to map the nearshore bathymetry. Those are some of the uh, things we're really you know, excited about as part of our research program. Dr. Webster is deeply engaged in advancing the state of the art in geomatics. He is committed to pursuing the most technically advanced understanding of how sea level rise will interact with the coast in the decades to come. It's a, an important topic. Uh, it's something we try to keep on top of the latest literature. Um, and there's, there's better, better modeling could be done. Uh, better mapping could be done. So there, there's, there's lots of room for uh, scientists in the future to uh, continue on with this work when I'm long gone. So now that we have a better understanding of how some of our leading researchers are gathering information and creating predictive modeling, 
How does this knowledge translate to action in our coastal communities? In coastal regions, we have been building right up to the shoreline pretty well. Our activities are right along the shore, our roads, our infrastructure. You just have to go into any coastal region like here in Atlantic Canada and on the west coast of Canada for sure. And uh, we have a history here, of course, you know, of settlement that has, has been tied to the shoreline. So that infrastructure that's in place is now at risk of being impacted by uh, the rising sea level as well as uh, when we have storms, the storm waves and the storm surge will be pushing further inland as the sea moves, the sea line, the, the coastline, the tide line moves further inland. So then our our infrastructure uh, becomes impacted and that impacts our, our economies and our health and safety. This is Dr. Patricia Manuel, a professor in the School of Planning at Dalhousie University. Dr. Manuel conducts research in environmental planning with a focus on climate change adaptation planning, wetlands interpretation and management, and watershed planning and management. She also researches community planning, design, and health. Her recent work has focused on climate change impacts along the coast and the vulnerability of coastal populations and communities to sea level rise and coastal flooding. By and large, some communities along our coasts are experiencing a lot more coastal erosion more frequently to a greater degree than what they were experiencing previously. So they're seeing land being sloughed away from in front of their roads, in front of their houses. So how do we deal with that? There are engineering approaches that one can use, that communities and governments and individuals can use uh, to address this. And there are also land use planning uh, approaches and there's behavioral change. The pursuit of fully understanding sea level rise and how to go about addressing it remains a difficult, nuanced debate, with clear trade-offs to be made. With the knowledge we gain from modelling such as Dr Webster's coastal flood risk mapping and the complexity and range of solutions for how to address it, which Dr Manuel discusses, we are provided with the tools to better prepare. But there is still no single solution, and as the sense of urgency continues to grow, We must keep exploring these evidence-based solutions and having these tough discussions on how we will make an effective effort to prepare for generations to come. When you live along the coastline, you're always seeing impacts of coastal processes, but people are beginning to perceive them as being more frequent, uh, more aggressive. That hopefully will lead us to more action because people are recognizing that now we we really do have to do something. With this sea level rise and erosion that we are continuing to face on our shoreline comes another problem. Our natural coast and its natural defences are left little to no room to retreat further inland in areas with direct coastal infrastructure. That's a problem because wetlands, for example, can adapt over time to sea level rise if you have a reasonably gentle slope and nothing nothing blocking their way from moving inland as sea level rises, then um, they can they can adapt, but where you're blocking their retreat, if you will, inland uh, and keeping up with sea level rise, you risk the flooding of wetlands, the loss of this really, really important natural um, system. There are many available approaches to mitigate these impacts of rising sea levels, erosion and storm surges before being faced with the hard reality of having to retreat our infrastructure further inland. A common response to erosion has been to use large boulders or structures to protect the shoreline from being eaten away any faster than we can accommodate. There are other approaches, such as seawalls, that can dampen the effect of flooding on our coasts. 
those are not necessarily going to be the things we want to keep doing because it's disruptive to the shoreline itself. It creates its own problems for neighbors down shore, and um, it's very harmful in many cases to the uh, to the ecology of the shoreline. In place of these solutions that are expensive to repair and harmful to the local environment, Dr. Manuel proposes using more natural processes, also known as nature-based solutions or nature-based approaches. You know, where we used to drain wetlands and infill that site and put in new land, uh, now we're looking at um, reinstalling or encouraging wetlands to grow in front of the shoreline again or reintroducing them where they used to be, or knowing that, you know, if you give them the chance to grow there, they would with a little bit of help. And those wetlands, uh, salt marshes, for instance, that they have the effect of being a first line of defense against energy at the shore. So I think we need to have a lot more examples of these approaches that show less reliance on physical engineering, hard engineering approaches, and looking more to nature to help, you know, address the problem. I think as individual property owners and as government uh, property owners, we need to start looking at where we're allowing development to occur along the shore. To address this need for development control, the Nova Scotian government has established the Coastal Protection Act, which helps protect natural ecosystems by enacting clear rules that will ensure new construction is built in places safer from sea level rise and coastal flooding. When we look at places that are leading the way in fortifying their coasts with nature-based solutions, Dr. Manuel points to Mahone Bay. The town of Mahone Bay, for example, is one place that's already, it's starting now to, to do um, an installation of, we call them living shorelines in there in the Mahone Harbour. Uh, so that is an example. Mahone Bay has been um, uh, showcased in some cases as being quite progressive in, in trying something different. I mean, they've got this incredible historic waterfront that they, they knew, do need to protect, so they know that there's something that they have to try that's different. And this will not only address some of that energy that at the shoreline, but it's also going to provide habitat. Dr. Patricia Manuel points to examples of innovative coastal adaptation work in Nova Scotia, like that of her colleagues at the Transcoastal Adaptation Centre for Nature-Based Solutions at St. Mary's University, which is under the direction of Dr. Danica Van Proustige. Research and practitioners with Transcoastal are helping build climate-resilient coastal communities and ecosystems by protecting, enhancing and restoring natural processes. Transcoastal is advancing work in coastal adaptation of dikelands through dikeland realignment, for example. What that's involving is understanding, you know, where is it that we can um, actually find opportunity to, uh, you know, reintroduce um, natural wetlands while also protecting dike infrastructure and you know, what can we do to ensure that the dikes that we have are going to be effective in the future? Do we have some choices to make on areas where we could, um, you know, which need, you know, more attention than others? What's the risk to the property, the, the, the land behind the dikes, whether it's agriculture or in some cases there are even communities behind these dikes? And investigating that. Another process the Transcoastal Adaptation Centre focuses on is managed dike realignment. This process is a combination of engineering and natural approaches that involves moving dikes back from its current location more inland, as well as shortening the dikes in some cases. In doing so, they decrease the amount of dike that needs to be rebuilt and maintained in the future, all while making sure they're protecting the valuable land behind it. 
This solution also provides other benefits to the local ecosystem. In front of the dike, you have a space now for wetland to to return to that estuary, right? So these are areas that were drained in the past. Wetlands used to be there, and now they're reintroducing the wetland. The wetland provides renewed habitat, of course, but the other thing it does is it protects the dike. In the more severe cases, proposed adjustments such as moving infrastructure further inland are understandably challenging for many people to accept. Even if they are accepted, in some cases, it's simply economically infeasible. That being said, whether we make the necessary compromises or not, the sea level will continue to push further up our coasts. No one wants to say don't be at the coast. I mean, that's we're coastal. <laughs> Islands and peninsulas are coastal, and that's what we define ourselves by the ocean and our, our relationship to it. So it's really important to be able to have that connection and keep it that way. But we need to keep the spaces that coastal marine and coastal industries need for access to the shore. We don't want to be um, encroaching on those if we can avoid it. And then for those other uses that don't need to be so close, let's move back a bit. Some places may need to think about moving their communities or certain areas back entirely. But here in the Atlantic region, as other places in the world, we're experiencing faster rates of sea level rise. And so when things are happening more quickly, um, we've, you know, we've learned to adapt at a, a particular rate. And now we're going to have to adapt a lot more quickly to accommodate that change. The expectations of a global one meter sea level rise by 2100 is widely accepted by the scientific community. This coupled with the fact that the Southern Maritimes is slowly sinking, paints a stark picture for our future if this goes unchecked. It may not be possible to fully halt a force as strong as the sea encroaching on our coasts, but with the help of experts like Dr. Manuel and Dr. Webster, we continue to gain a deeper understanding of where we can make a tangible impact and where we may need to consider conceding some land for the well-being and longevity of our coastal communities. It will require strategic, evidence-based approaches from government, industry and the public to collectively ensure that our communities prosper for generations to come. In issues as nuanced as sea level rise, we may not agree on a single approach, but by continuing to research, explore and implement solutions and further the debate, we better position ourselves going forward. Living on and near the coastline is deeply rooted in who we are as a people, and we must carefully navigate how we maintain this identity while coming to terms with the changing landscape of our future. I imagine most Nova Scotians have driven along some of the road network and, you know, kind of look off to the side past that railing and think, whoa, if you ever went over here, you would be uh, in trouble. And of course, that infrastructure is, is at risk as uh, we move forward with sea level rise. I don't think we really have a good handle on how much of that there is and what the assets are that, that are at risk. So to do that, we need to map it first. Then we can start thinking about mitigation and adaptation. It's really about, you know, trying to figure out how to ensure that um, moving into the future, we're doing, um, we're living in the coast in a sustainable way, by, but still able to enjoy it, still able to draw all the benefits from it for our culture and our society and economy. It's also a case of multi-generational responsibility. I'm, I mean, I'm here now. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I have some experience and expertise in the area. And if I can lend that to improving the future for our future, our future generations and our children and their children, then I want to be a part of that too.
Thank you for listening to Beyond Research, brought to you by Research Nova Scotia. We wanted to say a special thanks to Dr. Patricia Manuel and Dr. Timothy Webster. To learn more about the research you've heard on this podcast, visit researchns.ca forward slash beyond research. I'm Reese Waters, and we'll see you next time. This has been a Podstarter production. production.